Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the 15th, 15th class of our 34 class review of Jhana Meditation. Um, and this uh, talk is going to be the first of three on the Arya Parya Sama Sutta. Uh, this sutta describes the importance of seeking whatever you're seeking where it can actually be found. Um, it's positioned here kind of right in the middle of our review. And it might even uh, seem a little incongruent at this point, uh, or maybe that it should have been the uh, initiating talk. Um, but the reason why I placed it here is we've gone through and developed a rather deep understanding of why we do jhana uh, and how we do jhana. And this sutta describes the reason why we do need to develop concentration and that if we're not developing concentration, we're not doing the, 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 the Dhamma, we're not going to develop it. Um, and it points out some distract, common distractions. Um, the Arya Parya Sana Sutta, Siddhartha's noble search for a noble path. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Sabati at Jita's Grove and Nathapandika's monastery. He adjusted his robes and taking his alms bowl, he left for town for his day meal, day's meal, daily meal, sorry. A large group of monks approached Ananda. It's been a long while since we heard a Dhamma talk from the great teacher. It would be for our long-term benefit to hear a Dhamma talk from the awakened one. Ananda replied, venerable ones, perhaps if you went to the hermitage of Ramaka, you will get to listen to a Dhamma talk. From, from the Buddha. Now, Ananda was kind of a, uh, a playful fellow, just like the Buddha was. Um, and so he's already thinking in his head, he's going to make sure and manipulate the Buddha and get him over here. The, uh, the Those that asked Ananda said, we will do as you say. The Buddha returned from his arm and asked Ananda to accompany him to the eastern park in the palace of Magar's mother. For the days abiding. So the, uh, Megara was another teacher who took the, the Buddha and his Sangha under their wing, and they knew they could always go there to, to get food and sit quietly, whatever they wanted to do. Having spent the day in seclusion, the Buddha asked Ananda to accompany him to the eastern gatehouse to bathe. Having bathed, Ananda said to his teacher, the hermitage of Ramaka is nearby. It is pleasant and delightful. There are many, many there awaiting your teaching. It, we, it would be a benefit to them if, out of sympathy, you were to go there. It's an important line there, an important uh, use of the phrase, excuse me. Out of sympathy. <coughs> um, Siddhartha, the Buddha, should go and give a talk. So that this is not a, um, a salvific type of sympathy. It's not a, uh, an oppressive or demeaning type of sympathy. It's not a sympathy that implies that 
the ones that you're uh, simpatico about are somehow um, broken people themselves uh, that can't manage in the world or something like that. It's just out of our own common understanding of each other as human beings. And that's true sympathy, isn't it? Again, th that word simpatico. I understand you. I understand you because I understand myself. And it's the only reason why the Buddha, that's eh, not the only reason, but it's a, it's a large part of, of Siddhartha's um, way of being. He was in sympathy with every human being. He didn't obviously didn't know every human being at the time, but he understood the common human of the common human problem of dukkha. And in that way, he was <clears throat> in simpatico. So we're doing the same thing. We're, we're doing this out of sympathy for others. Or we'll get to that point, but we first have to do it for ourselves. So out of sympathy, he went there. The Buddha agreed and they left for Ramaka's hermitage. As they approached, they heard a discussion underway. The Buddha waited for the discussion to end. Hearing silence, out of silence, he cleared his throat and knocked to announce his arrival. Upon entering, he sat on a, a prepared seat and addressed the Sangha. For what discussion were you ga all gathered here? Great teacher, we were discussing you, and then you arrived. Not as really kind of uh, making, having a little fun with everyone. Almost miraculous that the Buddha arrived here. Good, the Buddha says, it is fitting that you have gone forth from good of families, from home to homelessness, and gather for Dhamma discussion. So that um, going from home to homelessness, it's not the same kind of homelessness we have today. It, it simply meant, at least for a period of time, you left your entanglements with the world. Right? You left that. Um, so we can go from home to homelessness. This is a good example right now. We're not homeless right now, but we've all left our homes to come here and, and practice the Dhamma. In that sense, we're doing, in, well, in a little, <laughs> in a little way, we're doing the same thing. We've left our home for our gathering, our homelessness. When you gather as a Sangha, you should always discuss the Dhamma or practice noble silence. So we don't talk about anything else here, and we don't get into other practices. Um, we only talk about this. And one of the reasons why um, I, I started this meditation class, and you could say the Sangha, about 13 years ago, I told this story last night, as a matter of fact. And when I first started teaching, it was uh, to a, a, a charitable um, event. I was hoping to make money um, to help uh, uh, someone do some service, uh, go to Africa. Um, and so in the beginning, it really didn't matter to me. I just wanted to get people coming to class, and so I did a few silly things. But by the third class, I realized that if I'm going to be doing this, I, I really need to be authentic to what I knew. And from that point on, I never taught anything that, hadn't, that didn't have anything to do with what the Buddha was teaching because it would only be um, distracting. 
And in that way, it would be cruel. I might get a lot more people um, to raise money. But what I was doing, if in that case, was doing something just for money. And I didn't care at all. I had no sympathy for the people that were taking the time, making a donation uh, to the charity and listening and spending their time. That's cruel to me. My way of, anybody else, nobody else, people that do that are fine. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't mislead people anymore. At least mislead people away from what <clears throat> I think an actual awakened human being finally taught. And so again, that the, the things like this that I came across in the suttas helped me set this up just this way. You know, so again, we don't do anything else that is taught by any other teachers, Buddhists or otherwise. We only uh, listen to and practice what's included in the Buddhist suttas. Buddha continues, friends, there are two types of searching. <clears throat> there are two types of searching for understanding. There is ignoble searching and noble searching. Ignoble searching would be where you can't find it. Noble searching is where you can find this. And what is ignoble searching? Ignoble searching occurs when a person subjects to birth, seeks happiness in what is also subject to birth. What is, a, what is I, I'm subject to birth. I'm subject to the, to the, um, to impermanence. Right? Birth implies an impermanent. Birth isn't something that is uh, eternal. It's a, a kind of a one-time event, isn't it? And so if I find myself in this plane of existence that the Buddha teaches the first noble truth as there is dukkha, meaning if you're entangled in the outside world and you're taking things personally, there will be dukkha, there'll be stress, there might be extreme suffering because of that point of view. But if I stop seeking happiness, which would mean giving birth to another moment of seeking something out into the world, I'm interrupting that process of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. And in this case, giving birth to a lifetime rooted in ignorance. So seeking happiness from impermanent objects, events, and views, and ideas out there is always going to cause stress and suffering, always. The very first teaching uh, in, the, in the very first presentation of the Four Noble Truths, uh, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the Buddha taught this small group of people that he was running around northern India and southern Nepal with. And upon this very short teaching, one of those Kandana declared all conditioned things that arise subject to cessation. That's what we're talking about. The key theme in the Dhamma is everything is impermanent, including suffering. But if we insist on permanence in a world that can't be, including, most importantly, establishing a permanent self with locked in views, and this is me, and this, this is the only me that I can be, there will be stress. And who's giving, now we're not talking about a physical birth, are we? Except in one almost insignificant way. We're talking here about what am I giving birth to in this moment, which relates directly to what I'm holding in mind. And if what I'm holding in mind is rooted in ignorance, it's only going to, I'm only going to give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. 
So the other birth, the physical birth that we've all had, is just an obvious thing that we should understand. There's nothing magical or mystical about me being here. My parents gave birth to me. I don't have to go beyond that. Like, where did I come from beyond my parents? Because we didn't come from anywhere beyond my parents except our physical line of lineage, the Buddha teaches in the Dhamma. And I have this life. I've been birthed into this human life. As far as we know, there's been all kinds of speculation. And I used to chase around. Uh, you could say I was chasing ghosts for a lot of times. This is the life we, we live. We begin with one breath and one thought, and we end it just the same way with one breath and one thought. And for some of us, it might be 68 years. <laughs> I hope not, because I'm coming up to 68 next, next week. It might be 101, like my dad lived. But I lost a dear friend of mine when he was 14. We all hear of, of babies dying right after birth. right? So there, there's no timeline, a fixed timeline for anyone. All of our lives are impermanent. We never know when the end is going to be here. So make this moment count. It's another reason why it's important to understand the presentation of the Dhamma in this way. It puts us in this moment. Because as Dhamma practitioners, we understand that the only moment that I can <clears throat> actually be alive is this present moment. And for me to be alive in this present moment, I have to have a way of being here, don't I? Again, jhana meditation, that's why we keep teaching this and taking 34 classes to do so. Because it's primary to counter what the Buddha's teaching here. And what is ignoble searching? Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to birth seeks happiness in what is also subject to birth. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to sickness seeks ha happiness in what is also subject to sickness. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to aging Seeks, ha seeks happiness in what is also subject to aging. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to death seeks happiness in what is also subject to death. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion, seeks happiness in what is also subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair, greed and, and greed and aversion, all leaded in deluded thinking. And then the Buddha says, what is it that's subject to birth? Spouses and children are subject to birth. So the Buddha is saying we shouldn't take happiness in birth. Is he saying we shouldn't take happiness in our children and our spouses? No. But he's saying understand but if you insist that they are yours, now you're in trouble. That I have my spouse, this is mine, because if my spouse dies, I'm awfully hurt. And I might spend the rest of my life grieving something that had nothing to do with anything except we get one breath in the beginning and one breath at the end. If I lose one of my children, I can't, I've never lost a child. I can't imagine how horrible that must be. But an understanding of the impermanence of all things can help relieve the grief. 
the Buddha teaches, eh, I can't remember the Dhammapada 16, I think, um, that fools grieve. And he doesn't mean the initial grief of loss, but to cling to that as an identity, to make it mine, is what causes ongoing stress and suffering. What is subject to birth? Spouses and children are subject to birth. I know I'm reading things twice, but when I talk about something, I want to bring it back into the context. Did that twice on this one thing, didn't I? Spouses and children are subject to birth. Men and women slaves are subject to birth. So this is something that was common during the Buddha's time. Now it has so many, uh, it, it can get people going. Um, but what the Buddha was saying. It was property at the time. Yeah, thank you. And so if one of your slaves died, you would take it personally. And the Buddha was saying, don't even take that personally. So we're, the debate about slavery shouldn't be here. It was common during the Buddhist time. Animals of all types are subject to birth. I just realized I got it. Um, I'm sorry, I said to myself, I just realized it, but I said it outside, didn't I? <laughs> um, I got uh, an email that must have came in late last night. I just happened to glance at the header this morning. It was from a, uh, one of our, uh, it was from someone that's been studying, um, but just listening to it anyway. Um, he just sent me this letter that he had to put his dog down, how awful it was. Can you give me, mm -hmm. I think he asked me, can you give me something? Uh, I didn't finish the whole thing. But in my, in my, my dog is 13 years old and he's starting to show signs that it's time to go. And when, when he goes, it's, it's going to tear me apart. I'm going to miss him dearly. But I also understand and I can appreciate this wonderful dog that I had all these years and take another breath and get over it. We'll see how well I do. <laughs> um, but, but that has worked for uh, when my dad died, I take it personally. All that I could think about, all that, all that I thought of at the time was sadness that he's gone, but great happiness for having known this wonderful man. I think I'll do the same thing with my dog. Just be, just be, realize how fortunate I was to have a dog. But the Buddha's even pointing this out here. Most people think our pets or animals are kind of insignificant. But animals are, are of all types are subject to birth and they're also subject to death. And if I'm clinging to the and creating an identity that that dog is mine, I own it. And nobody should ever take them away from me. I'm going to have a real tough time when impermanence intervenes, won't I? So the, again, it, it, the Buddha is not saying, and I'm not saying, we're not teaching that you shouldn't um, take great pleasure, right? We're sensitive to pleasure in spouses and children and, and animals, but also understand the impermanence of them. Then the Buddha says gold and silver are subject to birth. So even our wealth, we're going to have big piles of gold stored somewhere. But eventually someone's going to find it. Right? Come across it. Or something's going to take it away. In our day, it'll probably be, a, you know, we'll get caught up in a, uh, inflation, recession, depression, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
we're losing our gold and silver. But if I'm using gold and silver to identify me, I'm worth a million bucks. You know, that raises me above people. Now I'm only going to cause stress for myself because that's all impermanent. The Buddha says when these, when these are seen as acquisitions, and an acquisition is taking it personally, it's fine to have huge piles of gold everywhere, but don't take it personally. When these are seen as acquisitions, one becomes attached and infatuated with these acquisitions. Seeking, ha seeking happiness in what is subject to birth is an ignoble search. Seeking happiness in what is also subject to birth is an ignoble search. So seeking out there, what is subject to birth out there? Everything. <laughs> Who said everything? <laughs> the brand new one. <laughs> Let me just finish this thought. Yes, everything. And so if I insist on owning, in owning something, I don't mean in a practical sense. There's reasons why we might establish ownership of a house or even as a dog, you know, you got it. But seeking happiness in what is subject to birth is seeking happiness in anything out there, isn't it? But it's also seeking happiness in this. And blaming myself for why am I not why am I not happy? What's wrong with me? In that case, I'm seeking happiness in what is subject to birth. And the answer then is nothing is wrong with me. I don't have to explain myself or justify my existence to anyone. I'm sovereign. This is my life. And I can only live it the only way that I can by being me. I am what I am. We go back to Popeye. I can't change the fact that I'm a human being, although most people go through their lives hoping they can change what it means to be a human being. Being attached to things that are subject to birth. Because what is subject to birth is subject to death. Right? All things are impertinent. All conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation. And it's an ignoble search. It's a hurtful, it's a painful search to seek out there. Or to seek inside a fabricated self. Likewise, these are all subject to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair to greed, aversion, to delusion. Seeking happiness in what is subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion, is ignoble searching. So the Buddha's described what is ignoble searching, where we should stop looking for happiness, fulfillment, whatever it might be, feeding our ego constantly, feeding this this insatiable need for constant sensory stimulation and sensual engagement in the world. I mean, you know, every, my, my six senses, my six senses, <clears throat> grasping onto everything and making it all mine. 
what's a good example of that that might be subtle? Somebody says something we don't like and we take it personal. That happens all the time, doesn't it? But the reason why we took that one little sentence that really had nothing to do with us personally is because we made it personal. People talking about you. Well, you can take it personal or not. Things happening in the world that seem to go against the way you'd like them to be. And it gets you agitated. Well, that's taking it personal instead of looking out on the world and saying, this is what's actually occurring out there. And I'm not going to take any of it personal. And what is noble searching? Noble searching is while being subject to birth, right? While being subject, while being stuck in this world that is prone to stress and suffering. I'm a human being. While noble searching is while being subject to birth. I am subject to birth, right? I'm here. Seeking to understand the suffering of birth. Seeking the unborn and the unexcelled, unexcelled release of the yoke. The yoke is, is constant eye-making, constantly taking things personally. The unbinding. Now I'm going to read that again without commentary. Noble searching is while being subject to birth, seeking to understand the suffering of birth, seeking the unborn and the unexcelled, unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. Unbinding from what? Unbinding from ignorance of four noble truths. Ignorant, unbinding ourselves from our own fabrications. The unborn and the unexcelled. So uh, there's great lineages about what unborn means. In the context, it simply means now I'm just resting in my authentic self. I haven't gone, I haven't given birth to something that would take, that would cloud me from me. That's unexcelled. To stop giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance is unexcelled in all the universe. There's nothing more important to do than to end even the possibility of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. Noble searching is while being subject to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to, a, to diversion, to delusion, seeking what is free of sickness, of aging, of death, free of, the, of sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, free of greed and aversion and delusion. This is noble searching. Noble searching is seeking to understand what it means to be a human being. Noble searching is seeking the unborn, right? The one thing that never changes, the one constant in this world, as far as the Buddha teaches, as a consequence of having a human life, and it's a wonderful, marvelous, exhilarating, terrifying human life, isn't it? Most of train of thought. Really getting to somewhere, it's building up. The one thing as a consequence of having a human life. The one thing that we don't take it personally because it can't be. And as soon as I take something personally, I've now banished. I was going to say abandoned. Abandoned. 
one of my favorite comics was Norm Crosby. That's why I'm always messing up words like that. <laughs> it's something to remember. Let me, no, noble Searching is seeking the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. This is Noble Searching. The yoke is self-referential views. The yoke is wrong view. The yoke is distract is a constantly distracted mind. A mind that's always churning out my story. I forgot you twice, didn't I, Zach? Let, let me go to Zach. Oh, I didn't raise my hand again. Oh. You answered my first question. Okay, all right, good. Um, friends, before my self-awakening, right? We do it ourselves. This doesn't happen from some kind of external agency working on us. Friends, before my self-awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva or bodhisattva, a bodhisattva or a bodhisattva is someone who might have great compassion, as the young Siddhartha did, for other human beings, but they're still working out of ignorance. Right? Bodhisattva bodhisattvas um, in modern traditions are all seeking salvation, which is contrary to what the Buddha taught. The Buddha realized that, and he always, he always qualified that state of mind, the bodhisattva state of mind, this mind that is rooted in great compassion, but lacking understanding. He realized that was a, that was prior to his awakening. Good modern examples would be the Christian crusades and the modern jihad, right? Those are all rooted in a salvific notion. The Buddha realized that there's nothing to be saved from, except ourselves. Friends, before my, my self-awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, being, now being subject to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, <clears throat> being subject to these things means in an unawakened state, we are subjecting ourselves to the stressors of what occurs naturally as a consequence of human life. Subject to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion, I was seeking happiness in what is also subject to all of those things. He was looking in the wrong place. He was looking out there. And we can't find it out there. The Buddha would, would, talks about that quality of mind as being entangled in the world. The Dharma practice teaches us how to disentangle from the, disentangle from the world by learning to not take the world and this world personally. And most importantly, it's this world that I have to stop taking personally because it's this world that is misinterpreting that world. Then while all that was occurring, the Buddha says, then the thought occurred to me. Why do I, being subject myself to birth, to sickness, to all of those things, seek what is likewise subject to, to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair? Again, and now he's questioning, why am I looking out there? 
a good example is my own uh, alcohol and drug addiction. And this seeking, I insisted that my happiness was found in the bottom of a vodka bottle. And I chased through thousands of them trying to get to the bottom of every one of them as quick as I could. And I couldn't find any happiness there. And that's, that seeking almost killed me. Now, the, those of you that never suffered from that, suffered from self-imposed alcoholism and drug addiction might not relate, but we do this in all kinds of ways, don't we? We do it with, in, in sex. We do it in shopping. Is there such a thing as a home shopping network still around? Yeah. Through yep. the home shopping network. Maybe a better example might be Amazon. Through any external thing or agency is only going to subject me to all of these things. And all of those things, that long list of death, blah, 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 that's all part of Dukkha. And it all occurs because of clinging to what's out there, being entangled. Then the Buddha says, what if I, being subject to birth, were to seek to understand the suffering of birth? And all of all that, that that occurs being born and giving birth to ignorant moments. What if I, being subject to birth, were to seek to understand the suffering of that birth? Just install that. Seeking the unborn, the unexcelled, unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. So now he says, what if I started looking in the right place? What if I, being subject to sickness and that long list, <clears throat> were to seek understanding of the suffering of sickness, of aging, to death, again, that whole thing, to greed, aversion, and delusion, to understand it, not insist that it not be present, right? To understand it. And ultimately, it's not the suffering that's coming from out there. <laughs> it's the suffering in here. How do I stop? I'm subject to giving birth to a moment after moment after moment of this monkey mind of taking things personally. If you're looking in that same psyche and saying, I'm going to maintain every hardened view that I have, you're never going to get there because you're insisting to find your answers in that place that you're gripping to that, that caused the stress in the first place. Let go of it. Let go of the views. That's all it is. Right? This is painful. To hold on to things that way. To create identities that are so hardened. And that's the release. And it's just that way. And it can be from a lifetime of traumas, a lifetime of um, belief systems, a lifetime of I'm not, just not good enough. Well, I don't have to explain myself or justify myself to anyone. But there's a caveat to that, isn't there? I first have to know what it is to take responsibility, total responsibility, for what is occurring and why I'm living this way. Why do I think this way? Because my mind is rooted in the ignorance of four truths. What if I were to seek the unborn, something that isn't subject 
to the arising and passing away of all things. Something that's not out there. Seeking the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke. Constant eye-making, the yoke, the unbinding. So at a later time, while still a young man, black-haired, early in my life, my parents crying. I shaved off my hair, put on a robe made of rags, and went forth from home to homelessness. Excuse me again. Which was also common during the Buddhist time. Many people did it. There were thousands, maybe millions of um, young men and older men seeking this understanding and joining different um, lineages and different cults and different, different ideas. All of that went on. It was a common occurrence. But there was something different about young Siddhartha. Having gone forth seeking understanding of these things, seeking what is skillful, seeking the unexcelled and seeking an unexcelled and lasting peace, he went to some teachers. I went to Alara Kalama. On arrival, I said to him, friend, friend Alara, I want to practice your Dhamma and, and discipline to become your disciple. <clears throat> Alara said to me, you may say, you may stay. My Dhamma is such that an observant person <clears throat> can soon understand and integrate my knowledge and realize it for themselves through their own direct knowledge. The Buddha then says, from reciting and repetition, I quickly learned his Dhamma. I could affirm that I knew his Dhamma. I thought that it was that it is not through the mere conviction that Alara Kalama declares that I understand and have integrated his Dhamma and realize it for myself through direct knowledge. Again, there's an emphasis throughout all the suttas and our teaching that we develop this through direct knowledge, meaning a, a direct experience of what we're talking about. So there's intellectual knowledge <clears throat> that you can, I can uh, read a book all about um, uh, the cosmos, Carl Sagan all the time, um, and learn all that I can about that. But I can never really experience it, can I? And that's fine. That's not, we're not trying to do that. This is to be experienced by yourselves, by myself, not just listening to someone, not just taking it on faith. Okay, you know, my parents were such a way and they believe this way. Okay, I'm going to go with that. And that's fine if you do it. There's quite a few people here that found that disappointing at best. Alara Kalama declares that I understand and have integrated his Dhamma and realize it through myself through direct knowledge. Alara Kalama certainly understands and has integrated his Dhamma, meaning he's given full credence to his teacher as understanding what he's teaching. So I went to Alara Kalama and asked him, what is the culmination of your understanding and integration of this Dhamma? So the Buddha already understands that this doesn't satisfy what he's seeking, which is understanding stress and suffering. Alara declared that the culmination of this Dharma, now I'm calling it a Dharma to differentiate what our Alara Kalama was teaching and what the Buddha eventually would teach and what we teach here. The culmination of his Dharma 
<coughs> was interestingly enough, and what most of modern Buddhism seeks as a resolution, the dimension of nothingness or emptiness. Nearly every modern practice ends up in nothingness or emptiness. Something the Buddha abandoned 2,600 years ago because it had nothing to do with understanding the nature of suffering. In fact, it was, it was the escape from even having to, to figure that one out because it's it, it, this life you're going to be hurting, but it's okay if you do a couple things and you, and you pay a few people off in the next life. When you die, you'll enter the dimension of nothingness, and that's wonderful. How can, why, but, I mean, millions of people are seeking that the dimension of nothingness and emptiness right now, thinking that there's some value in that. Is there? I mean, does anybody think that Annihilation is something to seek? No. There's no there's no human humanity there, is there? There's no understanding there. Then I thought, not only does Alara Kalama have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment, I also have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. What if I were to strive to realize for myself this Dharma through direct knowledge? I quickly de developed understanding and fully integrated Alara Kalama's Dharma, having realized for myself the dimension of nothingness through direct knowledge. I then asked Alara if this was the culmination of his understanding and integration of his Dharma. Alara told me this was the culmination of his understanding and integration of his Dharma. He then said that it was a great gain for his Sangha to have a companion such as myself in their Sangha. He then asked me to, to lead their Sangha together. Alara Kalama, my teacher, placed me on the same plane as himself, paying me great honor. But I had the thought that this Dharma does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to stilling, to direct knowledge, or to self to self-awakening, or to unbinding. He understood that it was just the same game. This Dharma only seeks to establish reappearance in the dimension of nothingness. In the dimension of nothingness. I spent a lot of time in various Zen schools and even some Tibetan schools seeking that dimension of nothingness and always wondered why what they were saying on some level was kind of confusing and I couldn't really get it. But I really wanted this to, to be my thing. So, okay, nothingness sounds pretty cool in that case. I hope I don't get there soon, right? Or emptiness. I used to have great discussions with John Laurie about this because, you know, that, that's what he resolved in. And I couldn't accept it even while I was participating in it. I always had a lot of doubt, a lot of confusion. And it was should be confusing because we shouldn't go there. We shouldn't be going there. I found this Dharma unsatisfactory, so I left Alara Kalama and continued the noble search the end of part one. Um, cool. So again, just to reiterate the point, so seeking where it can't be found out there or thinking that I need to acquire something that makes me a better person is an ignoble search. And so maybe we can, go, as we go around, 
please talk about whatever you want. Please keep it brief because it, you know, this is a little bit of a long suit that I broke it up. Um, but if you're finding that in your practice, um, I'm going to ask Adam, because I know sometimes you got to book out. Um, great you're here, Adam. Thank you. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I think um, there's a lot of this. There are three, three big things. I'm going to go to one, though. Um, and that is um, the idea of um, uh, that the, this, I guess, the, the the noble search is is understanding of those impermanent things that you're looking for in the ignoble search. Yeah, and and to and to keep it a little bit simpler than that. Noble searching is searching within the framework of the Eightfold Path, right? And the reason why this is this gentle path is so important is it's it's just it's designed to do that. It's to keep our searching noble, keep our practice noble, meaning not noble in a king that I'm above everything because we're practicing it. Noble in fidelity to what? Noble in fidelity with the idea that that I have to seek understanding where it can be found. Where it can be found is within this framework. You know, each year. Begin with John of Meditation. Did that answer your question? Um, it did, and it sort of clarified one of the other things that I got out of it, which was that um, actually, I just lost it again. Um, we, we, uh, we have to let go of our um, belief that we are permanent and unending. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, and that of our, you know, understanding our own the fact that we were birthed. Yeah, and and that that should lead to something more than just a human life, because as soon it, 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 not as soon if that if that thought is established in my mind, then I have to seek salvation, don't I? I should be permanent. How can I become permanent? That's what man humankind has been doing forever. How can I just, how can I make this permanent? Since we've been looking up at the stars and, and any everything else, we've created these incredible fantasies about heaven and hell and and uh, Tulsita Buddhist heaven. And I mean, I'm I, I still can't read well, and with um, with joining with Allah. We do that because we can't understand what that. Wait a minute, I'm none of those things except this. I can, I'm a human being and it's all I can ever be, but that's enough. That's the point. Why seek more when it can't be established? Why do I need to be six foot four so I can play center field for the Yankees instead? Okay, you're never going to do that. Think of something else. And that satisfied the other two questions that you wanted? Absolutely, John. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Adam. I'm going to go online uh, and then get back to our group and home. Hello, Tracy. Hi, John. How are you? Thank you so oh, much good. for the teaching. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned at the beginning of the sutta that, um, you know, you had put this in the middle of the jhana review and as you were talking, so many things that came up, like, made me sort of be like, oh, 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 you know, like, I'm having, like, we all do, we're all having 
our lives with our attachments to people and animals and you know even as you were talking about your dog I started to feel because I have an old dog too and I'm I'm you know all of that's going on and the next sort of thought in my head is well how do we live this life then if this is all true which I I agree it is there's no way it's not and it reminded me the purpose of jhana meditation which is that the salvation if you will is actually by coming back to the breath and the body and remembering that there's peace in just being in the present moment and letting life unfold. No matter how many times I want to find the answer to these questions, as you're speaking in all these classes, I'm always like, oh, it just always comes back to that. Like, yeah. I'm like, but, oh, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's in yeah. this moment. And then you had mentioned um, who wants to feel annihilation. And my first reaction was, well, I do. But then I'm like, <laughs> well, no, I, I really don't. I really no. don't. Because that ends, that feeling of annihilation brings suffering as well at some point. Maybe for a second, using alcohol or food or drugs, you like that feeling of annihilation, but you ha you're still here. Yeah. You are actually still alive. So there's going to be um, suffering as well when that feeling passes like everything else does because we're actually still here. So I just wanted to um, thread that from at least for myself, maybe for the group, like thread that needle to say that's why it makes sense to have it in this part of the series because it's like that's the sort of quote unquote like salvation It's like, oh. You know, so that's really all I had. Yeah, that, that's a lot, Tracy. Thank you. I, I, I'm not going to say too much, but um, my relationship with my dog is has. Um, I, I just appreciate each moment with him because I know how fleeting it is. You know, I, I'm. 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 That's. That's true about everything and all of our relationships. Uh, well, I'll leave it at that. It's made each and every moment with him poignant because it is. You know, yeah. It's just, it's just a way. But that also translates to this moment in my life. This moment is a, is a poignant moment. It, it has deep meaning for me because I'm present for it. it, it again, in this present moment, Nothing can be different. When my dog is present with me, it's in this present moment. When he passes, it's just a memory in this present moment. But there doesn't need to be any grieving over it. I mean, there, of course, there will be. You know, I might take a year off of teaching, you know, my dog. That, that's, that's appropriate. But wishing and hoping that it didn't happen or doesn't happen is stress. Mm. And that's the subtle difference. That's the needle that we have to thread, isn't it? Thanks, Tracy. Thank you. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a reminder that um, it's in our hands, the uh, both the suffering and the way forward is in our hands to make sure choices um, that align with an understanding of the Four Noble Truths 
guided by the Eightfold Path. It always is about that. You know, that's just so foundational to all of this. But um, my reminder today is that it's really in our hands. You know, it's in our power. We save ourselves if there is any if there is any salvation, you know, it's a, a decision, a paradigm shift, a thought process that we experience um, in these teachings and validated by our lives, um, experiences in our lives that, um, you know, remind us to stay in a noble search um, and not an ignoble search. So thank you for the teaching. Thank you, Mary. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, John. Thank How you. How are you, my friend? Oh, very well, thank you. I'm so happy to be back with the Sangha. We're happy um, to have you back. Thank you for this profound teaching, too. And really just so much appreciate you keeping us on this noble path and helping us to avoid seeking dharmas that might fall short, just like uh, the Buddha went through, like you went through. Fortunately, I sort of stumbled right into this path with you at the beginning of my search. So um, thank you so much, and uh, happy to be here again. Yeah, glad you're here. Have a wonderful weekend. Please say hi to Robin and the kids. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, let's start with Bridget. Anybody mind being on camera? It's okay if you don't want. Do you mind being on camera? I'm okay. It's okay if you do. And so I want everybody to speak. I don't want to hear I'm taking noble silence. Because <laughs> but it is it is getting late. Um, let's keep it. You know, like everybody has. He's talking to you, David. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're twisted. Okay. Good morning, Bridget. Good morning, John. Thank you for the teaching. Um, I think this is uh, the second time that I've heard this teaching. And it's interesting as I'm listening to the different places that I find myself struggling. And sometimes some of them are different and some of them are the same. And I realized this like toward the end of the teaching um, that what was coming up for me was a struggle against little, uh, you know, remainders of hindrances that require uh, humility and courage mm -hmm. to basically just accept that simple truth <laughs> that, um, you know, there's no big story that I'm the center of or And that uh, it takes a lot of courage to just, you know, just be a person existing, and that's it. That's all that's actually happening. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can make wise choices or unwise choices or, you know, do whatever. Um, <clears throat> but that's what requires the concentration is yeah. that yeah. if I don't have some pre-written story or script or whatever, then I actually need to pay attention to what's going on. I can't just say, oh, well, here's how it's going to be. And all I have to do, you know, is just play along. No, I have to be here like, moment by moment 
fully present yep. if I want to even have a chance at making a skillful decision. Okay. I have to practice the Dhamma and follow the Eightfold Path if I want to have, you know, all the things that make up wisdom, including, you know, humility and courage. So that's. That's a lot. Thank you, Bruce. That's awesome. Yeah, that really awesome. does. Thanks for teaching, John. You're welcome, Zach. Following Bridget again. Um, I'm just, uh, what's, what's in the front of mind for me is the realization from three classes ago that, you know, in training for calm, what are we doing? We're, we're ending conflict in the mind. Yep. And um, I'm still getting a lot out of that recognition. Yeah, and, and that the conflict is being in conflict with myself, isn't it? And what I'm, what I want to hold in mind versus what we're starting to learn, that you might be starting to learn, what I'm starting to learn, is contrary to the Dhamma, and now I can understand what it means to be me. That's the seeking that's yeah. talking about in this. Yeah, and <clears throat> another important point is that now that you're able to say what you just said, because you haven't been coming to class for a while, and you're, you're building the overarching um, context in which to establish that eightfold path as the limiting factor, as a framework for your life. Thank you for describing it that way. Good to see Adam. Good morning, Becky. Good to have you back. Oh, so, so nice to be back. It's, it's wonderful. <clears throat> It was a, a long, a long hiatus there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really happy to be back. Um, well, what just came through to me is when you said, what if I were to seek understanding of dukkha instead of insisting that it not be there? Yeah. And <laughs> that is really what Adam said, and that's really... You said it was such a <laughs> <laughs> Boy, are we glad you're back. Was such a reminder of of what what you're doing in your mind. You're seeking to understand. You're not seeking to have everything be perfect. You're seeking to understand the dukkha, and that's 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 all you can do. And if you can do that, then you won't react to it. You don't. You don't make it your story. Yeah. Um, that's something that um, you have to keep working at. Yeah. <laughs> and taking these long hiatuses kind of gives you it. You do uh, do a few back steps when when <laughs> you're not when you're not here and you're not participating. So so glad to be back. Thank yeah. you, John. We're glad you're back. Thank you for that. <laughs> Wonderful as always. Oh, I didn't turn the camera. Oh, darn. Oh. Hasn't been saved in perpetuity. <laughs> See you, Adam. Bye. Thank you for being Bye. here. Bye, Adam. Somewhere nice over there is Tracy. Well, there's Tracy as best as I can get her. Julia? Julia? Julia. Yeah. Like Tracy's Julia. online. I yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're good. <laughs>
Hello, Julia. Hello. Thank you for the teaching. Thank you, everyone, for your teachings and your comments. Um, John, I wrote down what you said before we got into the teaching. This this one would be about why concentration is important, and I think everybody's comments really um, demonstrate, okay. how, you know, as human beings in the world, as householders, as people listening to the Dhamma, it all really resonated with me. And I think my comment that I would add to the discussion is I feel like I'm in a place where I am appreciating the narratives on so many levels, right? Yeah. There's the stories we tell ourselves about how we are in our daily lives, how we are in our professions, how we are in our nuclear families, in our extended families, in our communities, and as a member of the citizen of the world or, you know, whatever. And um, I feel like concentration is helping me to identify those stories and take a breath and be present mm -hmm. and just appreciate that it's all so impermanent. Um, and that's very helpful. So you're describing um, internal changes related to your Dhamma practice. And I know there's been some big changes in your life, but has anything really changed out there, outside? Nothing. All the changes you've made are in, in <laughs> the interior. They're within yourself. You're gaining an understanding of what it means to be Tracy without yep. attaching Julia. Or Julia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What it means to be Julia <laughs> without <laughs> attaching all these other things that you talk about as our story. Mm -hmm. There's just Julia being, did I get it right? Tracy. Yeah, Julia. That's <laughs> tough. I get it, John. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call Tracy Julia. And we kind of look alike, so maybe that's what it's about. <laughs> um, so, Jay, um, <laughs> you're describing just what it means to, to start becoming you as a human being without the external. But as we change, the reason why I said that and made such a point with Tracy is is that nothing really changed i mean it can everything changes all the time but there's no external changes that we have to make it really becomes radical self-acceptance in this moment isn't it yeah. and all those other things are what's going on in the world now some of those things are important like our spouses and our children or our job and that's why the buddha points those out those are the ones that we that are most important to not take personally but they're also the most difficult ones to not take personally, isn't it? So therein lies our practice. Thank you, Julia. Got it that time. So Julia. <laughs> so Raquel, welcome to our saga. Nobody ever has to say something, but if you'd like, if you'd like to share something, we'd love to hear it. But welcome to our saga. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for the opportunity for being here with you all. I'm new here, so I'm a little uh, shy also, but I, uh, I'm i trying to, as a beginner, to take everything in. You know, I have been all my life searching uh, for something that I haven't found yet, but uh, meaning, but uh, Buddhism and, and the teachings of Buddha always fascinated me, but I never had a chance to um, 
find a place that I could uh, go and and I mean big settings intimidates me and uh, this mm-hmm. is, seems to be a perfect one <laughs> and I hope it is I just moved here recently like seven months ago welcome to the area thank you my husband and my daughter and my newborn baby oh, um, and her husband of course uh, but um, you're talking about not taking things personally I think if you have traumas, be speaking of trauma, if, if someone, it's difficult to practice that if someone tells you, okay, I don't like you because of the way you, you look, because of the way you are. Yeah. So how, how you don't take this personally. In terms of everything else, it's probably possible because, okay, uh, had a car accident, for instance, should not take that personally. So how do you practice this? And how do you practice the impermanence of, of things? It's also another difficult one because you, uh, if you, there's two ways, I think, in my ignorant view is that, okay, if you don't take anything, everything's impermanent. So why bother? Why care? Why, why should I care about anything? Nothing is going to, to last. Uh, You're describing the despair of seeking it and nothing that's in emptiness, but you'll understand that deeply. Excuse me for interrupting. You. No, no problem. And the other way of looking is that, okay, uh, let me be present. Let me enjoy this moment. Um, a few weeks ago, I started realizing with the, the meditation that I'm doing about this, and I start paying attention because I have a large family. Every time we get together in parties, I used to be just... You know, like I'm little, I don't want to be here. I know I, I'm here, but I don't want to be here. And I start to pay attention, but then I start to see this is coming and going. So what is the meaning? So it, it's almost like empty and of looking at this. And I know like I lost a lot of people in my family already and everything. So one is, you know, who is next? One is. And I feel like that anxiety about this. So, yeah. so I think I said a lot. <laughs> no, 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 Raquel, thank you so much. Um, what you're what you're talking about is really the point of what we practice here too. Mm-hmm. You know, to, it sounds I, I, it sounds crazy at first, or maybe impossible to not take anything personal in the world, and it seems like ever, we should take this or that, or you know handful of things these have to be personal you're only increasing your stress level and insisting that these things that you're you're taking it personal means you want them to either to be different than they are to stay permanent or go away immediately aversion greed and aversion Um, as you deepen this practice you will come to an understanding that what is most important what his meaning to this life is very simple. It's being present for it in this moment. Being present for life as life occurs is the point of this Dharma. And the only way to be present for life as life occurs, not life yesterday and not life tomorrow, right here, right now, I have to control my mind. Why? Because there's a lot of stuff going on and there always will be. But if I can control my mind through jhana meditation and develop this view that's framed by the Eightfold Path, then each and every moment has meaning. 
and I no longer have to seek outside of myself for meaning, right? And, and so the identities that we have, we want them to be permanent. And there's a tension there. Sometimes it can be a rather strong tension. And so when we start realizing that what is the most important thing, what is the truth of happiness, it's pointing to my book, by the way, what is the truth of happiness is to be present for this moment in your life. And that, that, does that make sense? That I, that I used to think that if something happened in the future, I would be happy. And those things happened. And I was happy when I acquired them, these different things, acquisitions, remember. But very quickly, they became part of the burden I was carrying around because mm. I had to have, they had to be me, mm. including, and this is where it really hurts, but including my family, right? My parents, you know, think about how, I, how we as children think of our parents as maybe five, six, seven years old. Well, our parents are eternal, aren't they? We don't even think about the fact that at some point they're going to be gone. There's that's the, that's understanding human life is we get one breath in the beginning we get one breath at the end and everything else is here to be present for right so even with those things that are most difficult and really most painful meaning family and friends that when impermanence intervenes and you lose one or maybe two or three or four all at once is to understand that this life is impermanent and they were. And it, it doesn't mean that it's right. I mentioned a, a 14 year old that was my friend. He was really more than a friend of mine. He was, he was more a brother to me than a, my brothers were ever up to this day. That's how close we were. And he died suddenly. And I took it personal for years and years and years until I realized there was nothing wrong there. It was awful that a, 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 this wonderful kid lost his life at 14 years old. But my time with him was glorious. And the only thing I can, I, again, it took me a while to get to this point, how fortunate I was to know somebody like that and to be friends with him. And, and as I, and, and again, when my, my dad died a couple years ago, it wasn't some horrible tragedy. I just felt just, just this great, um, appreciation for having known him and I would rather have that association having known him for all these years than to never have had him and so again for me to have had that relationship I also have to accept that he's part of this plane of existence as well so thank goodness for all those years right rather than take it way too personally and wish it never happened that's annihilation. And I think you're getting a glimpse, a glimpse of where we're going here. Um, yeah, no, now just with classes done, I'm talking to Raquel for just a few moments. Um, be very, very gentle with yourself. The practice, let it wash over you. Let it come to you. And if you just make yourself present for this, meaning develop the meditation practice and your concentration will deepen. If you move to Frenchtown, there's no excuse to ever miss a class. I mean, <laughs> the, the more the more classes you attend, the, the, the I don't know how to 
with the quicker you're, I don't know if that's right, but the more, the more you, you, you let the Dhamma wash over you by coming to class, the quicker you're going to develop it, I guess is the right way to say it. But I don't want to say that, like, if you don't do that, or, or you can't do that, that you're practicing um, incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Practice within the framework that we've established here. Use the guided meditations on the website. There's five to 45 minutes, and you can download a 10-minute one. Um, if you do that twice a day, hopefully as soon as you get up in the morning and about 12 hours later, you'll you'll be establishing your Dhamma practice. And then come to class as often as you can. We'd love to have you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Okay, I'm reminding you that this is the, just the part of first part of three parts to the sutta. Um, there's two more coming up. And uh, we'll finish with meta as we always do. This is, we do this at every class for Phil. Um, meta is the Buddha's teaching to us of the quality of um, an awakened human being's mind. This is where we're where we're going. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class. Peace. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. 
If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.